There's a story printed in a British newspaper a number of years ago about a, uh, a lady and her husband. It started this way, heartfelt commiseration to Dorothy Naylor of Plymouth, whose recent day trip to Bridgewater was spoiled when her husband Oliver left her on the forecourt of a garage and drove 17 miles before noticing his wife was not in the car. She says, I couldn't believe he'd gone on without me. I usually sit in the back because I can move around more, but normally we talk to one another. The couple, both in their 70s, had pulled into the garage to change a tire, and Mr. Naylor drove off and didn't notice his wife's absence until he arrived at their destination 17 miles away. After stopping in town, he asked his wife, where do you want to get out? And when she didn't answer, he turned around and discovered that he had left her behind. The paper added that the couple had been married for 40 years. Now, all of us forget stuff. It's just part of what we do. Some of us are better at it than others. Um, but you've got to remember the important things, right? Like your wife, okay? Um, and if we were going to add to that short list of truly important, don't ever forget these kind of things, we might add, don't forget what God has asked of you. That would be a pretty important thing, not to drop off your to-do list. And this year, as a church family, we've been looking together at what Jesus says is the most important thing to do in the world. In Mark 12, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The greatest commandment. Jesus is saying to us, this is the most important thing in the world for you to do. And so, Today, we want to just look back over the year and think about what has God been saying to you about these most important matters. Our teaching has been devoted to these three circles this year. We started with loving God, and then we moved to loving the church, and we finished up by loving our neighbors who are outside of our church family. And so what I'm going to do today is highlight some of the core scriptures that we've taught. I'm going to tell some of the stories you heard, show you some of the images that you saw to try to jog your memory, to remember what it is that God has been saying to you so that you can be a hearer of the word, a doer of the word and not a hearer only and thereby deceive yourselves. So as you listen today, what is it that God has been prompting you to be more devoted to as we think about these three great loves in our lives? Um, it might be there's a particular circle that was an area of emphasis that you know you need to grow in. Or there may be a very specific application that you thought of that God has asked you to do, and you'll be reminded of that. Um, you'll have a chance the next few days to think more deeply about this. All of our sermons are on the website. You may want to listen to one that was particularly important for you um, this year as we do that. So let's bow together and pray, and we'll walk through these three circles by way of a quick review today, okay? Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us now. Teach us how to follow you, how to love you with all of our hearts.
um, holding nothing back, but gladly walking in your ways. Um, this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll start with circle number one, loving God. And Jesus says that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is absolutely the most important thing that we can do. It is the one thing that we must do. To love God, it's not a chore for us. It's a privilege because of who we saw our God to be as we looked this over at the beginning of the year. We saw that God, the God we get to love, is our maker. Paul writes in Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things created through Him and for Him, visible and invisible. Harper's Index estimated the amount of matter in the universe that was determined this year to be invisible, 98% of all matter in the universe is invisible. He made it all. He holds it all in place, even what is invisible. Um, He is the maker of subatomic particles. He's the maker of what's highly visible, of the more than thousands of of mountain ranges that are on our planet, of the 1.7 million species of plants and of animals and of algae. He is the maker of all things and the sustainer. In Him, all these things hold together. As John put it so precisely, all things were made through Christ, and without Him was not anything that was made. Isaiah says it for us. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them, not one star is missing. Now, if our Milky Way galaxy could be squeezed down to a scale model that was the size of North America, our solar system would fit in your coffee cup, okay? Our solar system would fit in your coffee cup. And estimates are that there are hundreds of billions more galaxies in the universe, none of which you can even see without a telescope. Moreover, each of these galaxies has billions of stars, which brings the grand number of stars in the universe to 10 billion trillion, which is more stars than the number of grains of sand on the earth. Nehemiah said it beautifully. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Creation invites us to worship and know our Maker, to worship and love the one true God. And this Maker, He loves us, and we get to love Him back. 
we get to know and to love this maker, our maker. He's also, we talked about earlier this year, he's our redeemer. And Paul writes in Ephesians, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Christ's blood has bought us redemption, forgiveness from all our trespasses, all of them. I know sometimes that's a question that dogs us, all of them? What about the terrible ones? What about the dark ones, the secret ones? All of them. And we know that it's grace enough because it's the riches of His grace that He lavishes on us. In 1971, there were a couple of London uh, filmmakers that filmed a documentary of the street people in uh, London, they captured some of the daily rituals of the homeless there. And some of them were drunk and mentally disturbed, others were articulate, some were unintelligible, and one of England's leading composers at the time agreed to help with the audio aspects of the film. And during his, during his work, he became aware of this constant undercurrent of sound. It appeared to be coming from one certain homeless man um, whenever he was filmed. It sounded like muttered gibberish at first. But after removing the background noise, Briars discovered that the old man was singing. He learned that the beggar, he didn't drink, and he also didn't socialize much, but he, he was alone and filthy and homeless, but he had a pretty sunny demeanor, and what distinguished him was this quiet singing. Um, he would sing for hours the same thing over and over, and though his voice was untrained, um, Briars noticed that he was on pitch, and he took a number of bars of this man singing and took it back to his studio at the fine arts uh, department at the college, and he started playing this loop over and over as he was anticipating composing the music you hear to go along with the man's voice. He left this loop running to go out of the office and do something else, and when he came back, he noticed that his department, everyone in his department was strangely quiet, and some of them were sitting alone weeping as they heard this homeless man say, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. There's one thing I know, for He loves me so. Now, how can that be? How is it that a homeless man can say, Christ's blood has never failed me yet, never failed me yet. There's one thing I know, that He loves me so. How can we be sure of His redemption, of His forgiveness for all of our sins, even in the hardest spots of our life? Well, again, look at Ephesians 1 with me. In Him, in Him, we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished, He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's how we know it's enough. It depends on God and His grace, not on me and my works. 
depends on the blood of His Son and the sacrificial loving payment He made for our sins, not on our ability to work them off, to be good enough. And that's how we know it's enough. It depends on God. He has done it. It is enough. He has lavished grace on us. We are fully forgiven. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ so that we can say with our brother, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. And there's one thing I know, for He loves me so. So this is the God we get to know and we get to love. He is our maker who created us in love, and then when we went astray, He became our Redeemer to buy us back in love. And now we get to call Him our Father, Maker, Redeemer, and Father. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Let me um, point out just a couple things that Jesus is saying here. First, bird watching is a command, okay? Um, Secondly, God is your Father. He is your heavenly Father, and you matter to Him more than Jesus is teaching here. You matter to Him more than anything else in all of creation, all of the creation that He cares and feeds every day. Now, uh, you may remember when I taught this to you earlier this year, I talked about the fact that I, in obedience to the commands of God, I have bird feeders at my house. Um, They've kind of turned mostly into squirrel feeders. Um, But there are a number of them. This is actually the one that's outside my office out here. And um, I feed, I fill these things up once, maybe twice a week. What if I filled up the bird feeders and I didn't feed my kids? Um, that would be unthinkable. Who, who would do that? If a dad cared more about feeding birds or fertilizing flowers or taking care of pets than caring for his own children, that would be the most miserable of fathers. So if I feed sunflower seeds to the birds and the squirrels twice a week, you know my kids are going to get three squares a day, right? Because I love them way more than any of the other critters on the earth. And yes, I did just put my kids in the category of critters. But they are my most beloved critters. Um, And God is showing us that He is like that. He loves us more than anything else in all of creation that he takes painstakingly care of every day. Listen to how God talks about his people, how he talks about us. Way back in Isaiah, he says to his people, you shall be no more termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Augustine said it wonderfully, long time ago, St. Augustine. He said, God loves each one of us 
as if there were only one of us to love. Because you are so much more valuable to him, Jesus says, than birds or flowers or anything else in all creation, you matter deeply to your Father who is your Redeemer, who is your Maker. You matter to him more than anything else. This is the God we get to be devoted to loving and knowing, our Maker, our Redeemer, our Father. Now, Are you more devoted to loving God wholeheartedly because of the teaching you've received on this this year? Is that an area of obedience that God is calling you to this morning? That your daily practices, those daily times that you set aside to seek and pursue and love God particularly, that you might be more devoted in them? Circle one is about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Circle two and three are about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And circle two is particularly about loving the neighbors in this room, the church, God's people, His family called the church. This is one of the main ways we love God back is by loving His people. By loving one another. You remember uh, midway through the year we rearranged the worship center into a circle? You remember that? That's why we did this. That was a lesson, it was an object lesson in looking across the room and being reminded that these are the people that you are called to be devoted in love this year. That's essentially what Peter was taught by Jesus, not once, but three times in John 21. This is how we love God back. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs, Peter. If you love me, care for my people, Peter. And these people, Scripture describes and calls one of the main metaphors for the church is the bride of Christ. Revelation 17 talks about this marriage of the Lamb, the Lamb being Christ that has come, and His bride, who is the church, has made herself ready. The church is the bride of Christ. You look around the room this morning, this is the bride of Christ. These people. And we could say, love Christ, love His bride. If you remember, I, I illustrated it this way. Imagine I invite a friend over to dinner, and uh, he says, uh, is your wife going to be there? And I say, yeah, yeah, she's going to cook the meal, and she'll spend the evening with us. And he says, well, in that case, no thanks. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, your wife's really not a very good cook, and it's, uh, I find her kind of, uh, kind of homely. And I really don't want to spend an evening looking at that, and I don't find her a very good conversationalist. She's pretty boring, unless you think my third grader is a good conversationalist. Then I guess you'd say she's a good conversationalist. And then he says to me, how about we meet somewhere else? And so I would say to him, somewhere else sounds great, just not the we part, okay? I mean, we're done. At that point, we're done, okay? That friendship is over. And to say that the way he thinks about my bride affects our friendship would be a severe understatement. 
You love someone, you love what they love. Love Jesus, love his bride. It's how we love him back. That's why it's so important that you don't just come to the show, but you become part of the church and you get to know the people in this room so that you can love them and love Christ by loving his bride. To love God, we must love one another. That's how we love him back. And Jesus is showing Peter that very thing when he says, Peter, do you love me? Then tend my sheep, feed my lambs. With humble service, with sacrificial love, with willing forgiveness, love my people. Love Jesus, love his bride. We love one another when we are loving Jesus. We love Jesus' bride. We also, though, are loving his body. This is another one of the main metaphors that the Bible uses to describe us, God's people. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about the church as a body, and he uses the parts of the body to represent individuals in the church. And he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member is honored, or if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay. We talked we looked at this, how we are together, but not the same. We have unique gifts that help us love one another uniquely by God's design. Hopefully this video will jog your memory. You have to be Android, but do be together, not the same. Okay? Each one of us uniquely designed to play a role in loving the people in this room, gifted by God to do that. There's, a, uh, there's an old African proverb that says, if you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. Okay? You are designed by God, a needful part of this church family with gifts that are important in loving and caring for one another and loving God back by loving His body. The Barna Research Group reports that, of 10, that there are 10 million self-proclaimed 
born-again Christians in the United States who in the last six months have not been to church apart from Christmas or Easter. Ten million. I wonder the church loves so poorly. Ten million of our, of our important keys are sitting on the sidelines, not loving. Jesus loves and cherishes His body. That's Paul's point, the basis for Paul's point in Ephesians 5. He says, in the same way, husbands love their wives as, Christ, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Okay. Jesus loves and cherishes His body, the church. So again, love someone, you love what they love. Love Jesus, love His body church. Okay? You were built for that. We are His bride. We are His body. Another image that's used of the church in the New Testament is that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 says simply, do you, know, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? It's a temple. And in Corinth, Temples lined the city. There were temples for every imaginable god, Aphrodite, Apollos, Poseidon. But there was no temple to Christ and His God. The people were that temple. So here in Wake Forest, you go just south of town a little bit, you'll find this Buddhist temple. Drive down to Kerry, you'll find the Hindu temple. If you want to find the Christian temple, it's not this building. It's not that building. It's these people. It's, it's the people who are in this room. God's Spirit indwells us. When, when we read, do you not know that you are God's temple, it's really plural. It's do you not know that y'all are God's temple. We are God's temple. The Spirit indwells us. And not just any temple, not just the outer courts even of the temple, but one writer says it corresponds to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament where God dwelled, where He was encountered and worshipped, where He spoke to His people and received their sacrifice. So if you want to encounter the Christian God, if you want to know what He is like, then watch us together. Okay? Watch how we worship Watch how we love one another. Watch how we forgive one another. Watch how we care for one another in the hardest of times, how we share with each other in times of plenty. Watch how we rejoice with those who are honored and suffer with those who suffer. If you want to see the Christian God in our city, then look at us. Watch how we love each other. How does that make you feel? Is God calling you? to a greater devotion to loving the people in this church family, your church family? Are there specific acts of loving care and forgiveness, of forgiveness and grace that God has been prompting you to do? Are there ways that you need to come in and get engaged in loving and knowing the people in this room? Circle two is about loving the church. Circle three is about loving our neighbors. That is those who are outside of our church family, outside of the church. 
And one of the motivations we looked at for doing that was simply this, hell is real. Hell is real. Jesus taught about it often in sobering terms. He says in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Later in Matthew, he says, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared prepared for the devil and his angels. And just a few verses later, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And we saw that hell is punishment by banishment from the loving presence of God forever. And the reality of hell is intended to motivate us to help rescue others from that fate. Jude closes his letter in the New Testament with this wise advice, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And the image he's talking about there is the fires of judgment that are related to hell. Save others others by snatching them out of the fire. And no more compelling um, statement on this have I run across than the one by this guy, the big guy, um, that's Penn and Teller, the magicians, um, Pendulette. Pendulette is a devout atheist, and he is confident there is no God. But listen to what he says after an encounter he had with someone at his show who gave him a New Testament and wrote wrote some words of encouragement to him. He says, um, first let me start this way, he says, uh, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize, that is, don't witness about their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there was a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So if hell is real, and Christ teaches us that it is, How ought that shape the way you pray for and talk to your friends who don't know Christ yet? How should hell, the reality of hell, propel you to reach out in love for those headed towards its suffering, to lovingly speak of Christ to neighbors and coworkers and family members and hairdressers and mechanics and the people who scan your groceries and the ones who coach your kid's soccer team? See, hell is intended in part to motivate us to rescue others from that fate. And on the other, the flip side of that, heaven is to provide an incentive to invite them into this. If you look in Revelation 21, John has a vision. He sees a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven, first earth passed away and the sea was no more. He saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The key thing about heaven 
heaven and the new earth, is that God is there. Okay? And that changes everything. The next two verses describe it. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's true. It's sure. Heaven is an incredible place because God is in the city and He's going to wipe away the tears of husbands and wives who've been betrayed and of children who've been neglected and abused, of sinners whose secret lives are full of shame, of those who've suffered a great, seemingly unbearable loss. God is in the city and His presence makes all the difference in the world there. When you ask Americans about who gets in to this life with God, um, their answers are really insightful. U.S. News and World Report a number of years ago surveyed 1,000 Americans on the question, who is very likely or somewhat likely to go to heaven? And here's the results. Mother Teresa, 79%. Oprah Winfrey, 66%. Michael Jordan, 65%. Hillary Clinton, 55%. And O.J. OJ's in trouble. He's at 19%. Right? But what's really interesting about the survey is that there was somebody in the survey who who was more likely than Mother Teresa to get into heaven. Me. 87% of Americans were somewhat confident or confident that they were going to get into heaven. Okay? But Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and very easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. Jesus is teaching us that sin has taken all of us captive to a path where we don't want to walk. And it's going to take us to a place where we don't want to go. And that place we refer to as hell. But the hope of heaven, of a better life in an amazing place in the very presence of God, that hope does not and cannot come to us because we are good enough to deserve it. None of our friends are good enough on their own. It doesn't matter what their GPA is or what honor society they're part of or how popular they are. None of them are good enough. The Bible is replete with this teaching. Paul says it's written in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Mark Twain's paraphrase goes like this. Heaven goes by favor, by grace. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in but it's by grace. Your friends, what this means is that neither you nor your best of friends can be good enough. There's no separate gate in Jesus' stories for people who are good enough. They can't find their own way no matter how good they are. Isaiah is crystal clear. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. If your good friend doesn't trust Christ to bear the penalty of her sin, she will have to bear it herself for all eternity. That's true of all of your good friends. Al Mohler, you remember this quote, he put it wisely. He said, if, if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will, will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self for crying out loud, Oprah will do. But if we need a Savior, only Jesus will do. And that's Jesus' own teaching. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way to this heavenly city in relationship with God. And Jesus is claiming to be that way. Now, towards the end of the year, as we worked in this third circle of loving neighbor, we learned how to pray for our lost friends and how to build a prayer list to pray for them faithfully. We learned how to share the good news with them um, using the other three circles diagram, right? Rob helped us with this and George. Um, we learned about the importance of hospitality, a lot of practical things. How is your devotion at loving your neighbors? Are you devoted to loving your neighbors? Has God maybe been prompting you to grow to be more devoted in loving your neighbors this year? And let me just tell you, tremendous opportunity next month with Christmas to open your home for gatherings that involve people outside of this room, outside of our faith. Okay. Call that the Christmas challenge. Open your home, have some friends over who don't know Christ and love them well. So, what would you say is your great takeaway from this year's teaching about being devoted to these three great loves? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor in the church, and loving your neighbor outside the church as yourself. What might be your takeaway? He said, some of you, um, you have clarity. You've been reminded of something you want God to do. Don't let that slip away. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And James encourages us to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. The worship team's going to come up now and lead us just in a brief time of reflection before our closing song um, that we might leave here with a sense about what it is that God wants us to walk away with as our great takeaway from this year's teaching. You may not have clarity on that yet, and so, over this holiday season, look up some of the old sermons. Go through some of your sermon notes. See what it is that God has been asking you to do that you might be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. So, if you would, bow with me. And let's just take a few minutes here and reflect before we close with a song of praise of the Lord.